This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, February 6, 2024. I'm Caleb Brown. Medicaid, from the very beginning, was a program basically designed to grow. And as you might expect, is one of the very largest parts of the federal budget. It perverts state incentives to spend their own funds reasonably and reflects a lack of concern about controlling spending overall. Cato's Mark Joffe is co-author of a new paper on Medicaid. We spoke last week. So if you don't mind, Mark, discuss the Medicaid program. It is, it's a partnership, arguably. That's how it's presented anyway uh, between states and the feds. But, but how does it work practically? Yes, it's a, it's a federally initiated program going back to 1965, right at the same time that Medicare was started. And the idea is that the federal government pays a share of medical costs for people on the program, and the state pays the rest of it. And the share varies by how affluent the state is. So a state that has a relatively low per capita income, like Mississippi, might be near you know, 80% federal share, but uh, an affluent state like California or New York will be closer to 50%. One of the strongest points I think that you make is that from its inception, the Medicaid program was not designed to be something that was cost-effective in any way. Yes, it has a lot of strange incentives that have caused spending to escalate. And as you say, it really started right from the beginning. In uh, 1966, New York State figured out that there was no limit on the income that they could associate with someone being, quote-unquote, low income. So they set an income level that brought in, I think, about you know, 35, 40% of the whole state's population into that definition. And as a result, large numbers of people suddenly became eligible for this program, and it far outstripped the federal projection of how much uh, the federal government was going to uh, spend on it. As we saw with the, uh, the Obamacare rollout, that program, uh, there was a massive amount of upfront spending that the feds were willing to do in order to cover the newly eligible for uh, Medicaid. And that has has given states an even larger incentive to try to expand roles and expand eligibility uh, to a great extent. Yeah, absolutely. And like all large programs, there are just these unintended consequences. And you know, we found in the paper, you know, spending a lot on Medicaid doesn't necessarily mean better health outcomes. So, you know, for example, we looked at uh, low birth weight and uh, states that spend more on Medicaid don't necessarily have better results with low birth weight than those that don't. Again, that kind of thing parallels uh, Obamacare and all other programs that uh, try to give free medical care. Visiting a doctor, visiting other specialists doesn't necessarily equate with better health. And yet the notion of cutting Medicaid or at least adjusting it in such a way that incentives are better aligned, uh, which is, you know, a much smaller proposition, it's it's almost ignored by people in in politics. It's 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 almost never a serious discussion. Yes. I mean, there has been some discussion from over the years, uh, thanks largely to our colleague Chris Edwards, about the idea of changing Medicaid to a block grant program. So the idea being that the federal government would give each state a fixed amount of money, perhaps based on what it most recently spent. And then the state would manage the entire program. And then in that case, because 
the state knows that it can't get more money from the federal government through having more waste, fraud, and abuse, it's going to have an incentive to crack down on that uh, waste, fraud, and abuse. So that would be a good way to go, given the problems that we have with the federal budget, and especially entitlements, and given the fact that Medicaid has somewhat less political support uh, than Social Security and Medicare, it should be an area that you know, a, a well-functioning Congress would be able to attend to. And you know, hopefully at some point we'll have a well-functioning Congress. From your perspective, what are the methods or techniques or focal points that members of Congress, were they suddenly serious on uh, reducing Medicaid outlays? What, what would their efforts look like? I think block granting is really where it uh, it starts and really can end. Just give states flexibility to operate their Medicaid programs as they see fit and uh, don't reward them for extra spending. So just just keep it a fixed amount of uh, of money and potentially you know reduce that over time so states become more and more responsible for their own uh, their own spending decisions. But e- even the incentives that are built into Medicaid make that a, a pretty difficult political proposition because you have this sort of, I guess, uncomfortable uh, juxtaposition where the states that are the poorest, the states that get the relatively larger match for their Medicaid programs are also states that, at least in our current political climate, tend to be run more by Republicans. Yes, this is, uh, this is true. Although, again, the way a block grant could work is you could start it with the current amount that's being spent. So they effectively would get the higher federal matching rate. It's only uh, over the course of years as more people become eligible or the relative per capita income of states change that you'd really start to see you know, movement between, between states in terms of how much subsidization they're getting. To the extent that states are willing or interested in reducing their Medicaid outlays, it should be noted that the the incentives as they are structured here encourage states to spend more than they otherwise would on on these kinds of programs. So to the extent that states are genuinely interested in uh, reforming the program, how would they go about it? Well, you know, first I'd want to say states do have skin in the game, even if the federal government is uh, covering 70 or 80 percent of the expense they're still covering the other 20 or 30. It gets a little bit more difficult with the Medicaid expansion population that was part of Obamacare that allowed healthy uh, adults with no kids, you know, over 100% of um, the federal poverty line up to 138% of the federal poverty line to join the program with a 90% match. Still, even then, the state is looking at spending 10, 10%. So we have have found some states are very responsible and very concerned not only with their part of the cost, but the overall cost of the program. Uh, I went to Idaho last year to speak to a, a task force that was looking at alternatives to rein in Medicaid costs, and they were very fo- focused on the bottom line. What is the total amount that Idaho is spending both the federal funds and state funds to um, bring this problem under control. Unfortunately, they looked at a solution that we don't find a lot of uh, empirical evidence for, which is the idea that you would turn over the management of the Medicaid program to a managed care organization or an MCO. 
So this is an idea that gained a lot of traction, I think, in the 70s and 80s and 90s with the popularization of health maintenance organizations and preferred provider organizations. And these were seen as a way of of bringing down the cost of private health coverage. But it doesn't really map all that well to Medicaid because Medicaid has very limited beneficiary co-pays. So, you know, at the time of care, uh, you might only have to spend $8 or even less, depending on the type of service you're, uh, or product you're receiving. So there's that. And then there's really just not a lot of other flexibilities because the federal government controls the program so tightly. So managed care organizations can get, you know, 15% of the spending, but they don't really have a lot of tools that they can use to save back the 15%. And as a result, lower costs for the state. So, you know, that's one thing that doesn't work. I can get on to a th- couple of things that we think might work if you like. Sure. We're looking at your home state of Kentucky. The previous governor tried something which uh, we thought had a lot of promise, but was short-circuited uh, when party control in Kentucky changed. So the idea there was to try to give beneficiaries more skin in the game. And what they said essentially is, look, we're going to give you a savings account a health savings account, and we're going to put money in that based on good behaviors you do, like participating in a tobacco cessation program. But then once once you've got that account established, we're really going to draw that down very heavily if you do you know, bad things that cost the state money, like, for example, presenting at an emergency room when you don't have a medical emergency. So that seemed like a good idea for creating good incentives for Medicaid beneficiaries in Kentucky. But again, because uh, the uh, new governor stopped it, we don't really know uh, how well it would have worked. So a couple of other things that my research associate, Chris Chen Wang, and I, who uh, worked on this paper together, found as being promising is telehealth and um, using nurse practitioners. So, you know, visiting a doctor, can cost a lot of money. And even though Medicaid reimbursement rates are lower than uh, they are with Medicare in most states, still occupying a half hour or an hour of a doctor's time is going to be more expensive than if you use um, telehealth and or uh, use a mid-level provider like a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. The problem that we found uh, with states that are implementing these ideas is they often try to maintain parity between these alternatives of you know non-physical visit and or a visit with a, a non-doctor healthcare provider and a traditional visit. So unless they differentiate the reimbursement, it's not going to save any money. And you know, we would argue that they should. Another big piece of the Medicaid plus picture, which uh, people often lose sight of because we tend to think of Medicaid as, you know, care for pre-Medicare people who are in a you know, needy financial situation. But a big part of Medicaid is paying for long-term care for the elderly who've uh, run out of assets. So there's a couple of issues there. First of all, people can fake running out of assets. So they can work with a lawyer and they can work with their heirs to transfer a lot of their money before they die. So they really had this money. It's really available, but they've hid it from the uh, government. So as a result, we're getting more utilization of Medicaid long-term care services. And then second, you know, once someone has a proven need for long-term care assistance, you know, what kind of assistance are, are we going to provide? There's a lot of 
uh, cost differentials in nursing homes across states. And then there are non-nursing home alternatives, like in California, where we have something called a board and care facility, which is a residential home that has a maximum of six residents. And only one to two people uh, are looking after them. So there's a good ratio of staff to patients and uh, the, the overhead costs are lower because it's in a residential house. So, you know, uh, looking at, you know, uh, moving uh, nursing home patients to states that have lower nursing home costs, especially for those patients that don't receive visitors, which sadly to say is more than half. And then using alternative to nursing homes like board and care facilities are ways that that portion of the Medicaid program can be made more cost effective. Mark Joffe is co-author of the new Cato paper containing Medicaid costs at the state level, available today. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please. And thank you for listening.